Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to my new podcast every Friday, 11 a.m. Mountain Time on the Post-Progressive Facebook group. It's called This Week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at our progressive paper of record. And this is something I've been fantasizing about for 30 plus years. Uh, I've been getting the New York Times that long, I think, delivered here in Boulder, the actual newspaper, for several decades at least. And every morning I read it, and I think, I think, integral thoughts. <laughs> so I thought I would, and I've always wanted to share them, because it's, it's the inspiration for the Daily Evolver, and it's what lights me up in general. And that is to use integral theory this theory mainly of cultural development. There's other aspects to it too, but this idea that culture evolves, consciousness evolves, using that to illuminate current events. And conversely, to use current events to illuminate and teach integral theory. So that's what I've been doing with the Daily Evolver, and that's what I'm going to be doing here now with my original inspiration, which is to talk about what I see in the New York Times, and I may sneak some other media in there too. But the New York Times is gonna be my touchstone. It's what a lot of people read. And it is indeed leading the sort of cutting edge of culture, if you will, which is moving more into green, more into bright green, sometimes into mean green, uh, into good green, and the difference between good green and mean green is that, you know, good green is bringing on um, multiculturalism, you know, this idea of widening our circle of compassion to include basically the whole world and particularly people who have been left behind by the previous structures. And then also in a planetary ecology that recognizes that, yeah, if we can clean up our backyard and we can clean up our nation, and now we have to take on the global ecology. And this is where culture is moving and it's moving quite fast. And that is good green. You know, there's much good that comes from that. It's essential. Mean green is just the, you know, it's, it's the, in every developmental stage has its mean aspect and it's the part that wants to shove its good stuff down everybody else's throat, whether or not they see it. And so that's happening too. So I will look at the New York Times and um, we're gonna start here today with a, I think there'll be a theme here today that'll arise as we go through things. First is a, an article on Simone Biles who left the Olympics after underperforming at the preliminaries. She pulled out and her team won the silver. And, um, and here's what they had to say about this. It's called a gymnast's champion mindset. After an unusual underperformance at the preliminaries, Simone Abiles realized that she could not execute her planned vault on the team finales and after some deliberation, she bowed out. At the end of the day, we're human too. So we have to protect our mind and our body rather than just go out there and do what the world wants us to do, she said. And so that, that right there is really, that's, that's significant. This idea that an athlete is 
a, a full human too. And that's one of the things that Green wants us to do is to see each other more, more fully, to go beyond the appearances, to go beyond the stereotypes, to, to go beyond the roles that we play and to see the human inside. And not everybody sees that as progress. <laughs> and we'll see how this uh, unfolds here. She said, so then we're back, not quoting, but the author Lindsay Krauss writes, Biles joins a growing number of younger athletes, including the tennis star and Olympian Naomi Osaka, who are pushing against the traditional American narrative of gold at all costs, including the expense of their own mental or physical health. There was predictably plenty of pushback Critics on Twitter lamented that quitting is the new winning, casting it as weak and lazy Generation Z behavior. There was also a lot of critique from the right on just the feminization of culture, which I realize has been a conservative critique since like, for a couple hundred years as men become more feminized. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, in, in a good way, uh, mostly, yeah. So anyway, we'll go on here. She said some compared Biles un, some compared Biles unfavorably to Carrie Shrug, the teenage gymnast who landed a vault on an injured ankle to help her team win the 1996 Olympics. And I remember that. And she was the hero. She went, you know, and, and as the writer goes on, she says, in fact, it's a worthy comparison, but not in the way that Biles's critics contend. While it was roundly applauded at the time and still is often held up as a moment of Olympic glory, what Strug went through was horrific, hurting herself while America cheered. She never competed professionally again. And so, um, let me just see how we're gonna do this. Um, okay, this is a quote from Simone Biles at the end, she says, Ultimately, this is just sports. As Biles herself said after the competition, there's more to life than gymnastics. What? So that is, that's significant. And it points to a significant split between modern sensibilities and certainly traditional sensibilities. Traditional sensibilities, you march off to win. You march off to war, you would die before dishonor. And that's the thing, put me in coach, you know, I, I can do it. And, you know, they get ruined and it's, you know, they're, they're forgotten and that's not good enough anymore because we have a new stage of consciousness that is taking our in interiors and our humanity actually far more into account. And I thought it was significant that, you know, the New York Times is the progressive paper of record. Uh, the, the Wall Street Journal is the center-right paper of record. And even they came in with an actually even more glowing account of this in terms of praising Simone Biles. And this is by um, Jason Gay, their big sports reporter. And it says... And I, what Simone Biles was saying, an iconic Olympian hits pause on the biggest athletic stage, widening the conversation about mental health in sports. And um, let me see here what I want to read. Yes. 
Much of the consternation boils down to change. Athletics, athletes see the world differently now. Sports and the culture around it is evolving from hard-headed stoicism towards something more self-aware and hopefully humane. If you were raised on athletes gritting through broken bones and concussions and quietly soldiering on amid personal traumas, I get it. This can be jarring. But the world is changing beneath our feet. Yep. Treating mental health as, physic and as physical health is a transformation long overdue and not just in sports. If what Biles is saying by stepping aside doesn't connect with you, that's okay. I assure you it is reaching someone else. And then they, at the end he writes, Biles, it is no exaggeration, is, is gymnastics. A towering figure who's transfer, transformed her sport with athletic excellence and by bravely speaking truth to power. Her platform is unrivaled. Her influence is vast. This is part of what makes her decision to step away significant. It's also the reason she can do it. Biles may be the greatest gymnast ever, but they'll remember her for this too. And I suspect she'll be proud. So yes, the world is turning beneath our feet and people don't wanna be seen as cogs in the machine anymore. Um, that moves into a bigger topic. And again, I'm gonna venture slightly outside the New York Times with the latest Time Magazine that is on rethinking work. The subhead, there are 9.2 million open jobs. Why nobody wants them. So we go in and we see um, wage rage, one of the articles. Workers want higher page, generous benefits and better treatment and they're getting it. And um, another article in here, which is, uh, I thought was, you got to read it to believe it, but it's, it's, it makes a point. The empathy trap and how companies' um, efforts towards empathy aren't even enough because we have to take into account people's backgrounds and how they're wired and so forth. There's truth to all of that. And this is, this is big, big part of the culture war. But we can see that you know, in many ways, capitalism is, uh, it's evolving for sure. I mean, I was going to say it's winning in the sense that the market is driving up better behavior, better treatment, better wages, better options, more work at home, bring your dogs, be seen as a human being. You know, uh, Mario Batelli is paying, I think, what, $6 million to, um, employees that he, well, sexual harassment, I think is the key to it, but it was also just general bullying as a chef in a Spotted Pig, a big famous restaurant in New York. And that whole culture of the chef being the, the, uh, the, the dictator and um, uh, that, that's going bullying in general is going away, uh, at least from the establishment. Now we can see bullying in Mean Green uh, that's another story for another time, but it's all fun. It's all good. All right. So that's, that's coming into work. Um, and I see a, a, another article in the New York Times that fits into this theme. And this internationalized it. And, and, and actually, one thing I would say about the New York Times 
that I'm appreciating uh, is that they're covering international stories, far more of them in terms of culture and the uh, features, if you will, not just the news and the economics and the war and peace and that sort of thing, but the cultures. And so we see, uh, you know, well, uh, there's a whole thing I'll do in a future episode about indigenous cultures and how they're being rehabilitated by the New York Times. And, um, but that's for another time. Uh, this one I want to point out here is uh, along the lines of this theme of work. And this is from China. And it is for young people in China, lying flat, in quotes, beats working. For young people in China, lying flat beats working. And um, the subhead is a millennial's anti-consumerist anti post struck a chord with his generation. Beijing is not happy. And by Elsie uh, Chen. Five years ago, Luo Hassong discovered that he enjoyed doing nothing. He quit his job as a factory worker in China, biked 1,300 miles from Sichuan province to Tibet, and decided he could get by on odd jobs and $60 a month from his savings. He called his new lifestyle lying flat. I've been chilling, <laughs> Mr. Lu, 31, wrote in a blog post in April describing his way of life. I don't feel like there's anything wrong. He titled his post, Lying Flat. Lying flat is justice. Attaching a photo of himself lying on his bed in a dark room with the curtains drawn. Before long, the post was being celebrated by Chinese millennials as an anti-consumerist manifesto. Lying flat went viral and has since become a broader statement about Chinese society. A generation ago, the route to success in China was to work hard and get married and have children. The country's authoritarianism was seen as a fair trade-off as millions were lifted out of poverty. They're now defying, uh, yes, these millennials are now defying the country's long-held prosperity narrative by refusing to participate in it. They don't want to be cogs in the machine either. Uh, a couple more paragraphs I'll read. This is about Leon Ding, he's 22. He's been lying flat for almost three months and thinks of the act as silent resistance. He dropped out of university in his final year in March because he didn't like the computer science major his parents had chosen for him. After leaving school, Mr. Ding used his savings to rent a room in Shenzhen. He tried to find a regular office job, but realized that most positions required him to work long hours. I want a stable job that allows me to have my own time to relax but where can I find it, he said. Mr. Ding thinks young people should work hard for what they love, but not 996, which is the Chinese, I guess, saying for working 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, which many employers expect. To be honest, it feels, this lying flat, feels really comfortable, he said. I don't want to be too hard on myself. I get it, me neither. Um, so China's internet regulators ordered online platforms to strictly restrict new posts on lying flat, which is Tang Pin in Chinese. Uh, uh, it uh, forbade uh, 
commerce platforms from selling clothes, phone cases, and other merchandise branded with Tang Ping. And so, you know, they're trying to fight this cultural meme that's arising. And they, uh, they have lost to the degree that there is a very, very popular song. They'll probably suppress it too. But here's a, a popular song on YouTube that um, what's this, Zhang Zimin was inspired to write about lying flat. And he wrote, the lyrics of the song are this, lying down is really good. Lying down is wonderful. Lying down is the right thing to do. Lie down so you won't fall anymore. Lying down means never falling down. So that's what's going on there. And again, the good green of this is that people in this new stage of development in this world, new world, demand to be seen. I mean, that's just in a way, that's the best way to see it. I, they don't want to be seen as women, as men, as this, as uh, race, stereotypes. They want to be seen as people and, and not also as their roles. And the New York Times did a, a special section a couple of weeks ago on this very thing of just seeing and being seen. The people who have been in the dark, have been in the margins, coming out, getting attention. And this is the special section. It's many, many pages. It's 54 pages. And it's just pictures upon pictures upon, there's a center page ad, of course, but pictures, just double page, magazine size, uh, just photo after photo. And it's called essential, but not uh, essential comma, but no guarantees. Excuse me. Essential, but no guarantees. The service industry jobs that keep New York City's heart ticking took a huge hit in the pandemic, leaving many people struggling. Meet some of those workers. And so you open it up, and there is Dolce Martinez. She's a house cleaner. She gets the inside front cover. And then a little bit of an essay, three pages, called, the starts with, they kept, well, the title of the essay is, They Kept a Metropolis Alive. The city's 2.5 million service workers were at the center of the pandemic as it ravaged New York and its economy. Second page shows Mohammed Hassan, who is a Uber driver. Many had neither the luxury nor the choice of working from home if they had work at all. It goes on. A reminder that community comes with the responsibility to help friends and neighbors. And again, this is that widening of the circle. These are our people. These are our brothers and sisters. These are the people you don't normally see, you take for granted. And then again, it goes on for 57 pages of Michael Bell, custodian. Tim Franco's personal trainer, Ken Lee, owner of KK Discount Store. You know, you can see these people. And as a practice, as an exercise in seeing into people that you don't easily become, you know, ignorance is one of the 
um, poisons in, um, in Buddhism. And you want, to, you want to see. So as a practice, to sit with this as I did for you know, 20 minutes and just look at these people and try to have some feeling for them is um, very powerful and made me a better person having read it. Even though there was part of me, the traditional, um, uh, the, the even modern part of me that says, you know, suck it up like I did. You know, I went to work when I didn't want to. I put on a tie when I didn't want to. I had to deal with bullies and bosses that, you know, would be out of line today. Well, you can too. That's not how it works. There is a part, part of, um, of human development is, you know, just seeing more. And it's not just seeing more people. Of course, I've talked about that. But it's also seeing more of ourselves. You know, a big part of the, the movement into green is the psychotherapeutic project of seeing our multiple selves. In fact, I wasn't going to necessarily show this, but I think I will. I can grab it real quick. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting and um, and telling about just, just, it's kind of a throwaway in a sense, but this was a... Um, a two-page spread, and it's it's in the culture section, and it is about uh, one of the articles is about a writer who was his own cast of characters. A new biography of the poet Fernando Pessoa explores his many many selves. We get that. We know what that means. In the conformist worldview, you don't have many selves. You have one self, and you want to perfect it. And, um, and, and use it to, you know, the greater glory of God in your community and nation. And that's what you do. You know, it's not about your many selves. And then across the page, across the gutter, is another article, just unrelated. The body becomes a transcendent vessel. And Kakoni Kaju Thomas, her exhibition showcases the artist's converging identities. So, you know, that's just the stuff of green and the movement into green. All right. Next is another, let's see, just a couple more things here along the same theme. This is from the Sunday New York Times last week, the cover of the arts and leisure section. And this is, it's called Unseen in the Orchestra. And you can see it, this, this is a picture, full page picture of David Kim, who is a violinist in the San Francisco Symphonic Orchestra. The success, the subhead is, the success of musicians of Asian descent obscures the racism and discrimination faced by many. What about do not disturb, do you not understand? iPhone. Okay, what did I say? Unseen in the orchestra, the success of musicians of Asian descent obscures the racism and discrimination faced by many. So it's a big article, two full pages. There's uh, shows various uh, Asian uh, artists in classical music. This is about classical music. And again, I'm gonna read a couple sections.
Asian artists encounter stereotypes that their music making is soulless and mechanical. They are portrayed as exotic and treated as outsiders in a world with its main lineage from Europe. They are accused of besmirching cultural traditions that aren't theirs and have become targets of online harass harassment and racial slurs. While artists of Asian descent may be represented in classical music, and they actually point out that they're represented in higher numbers than they're, than they're, um, than they're represented in the population as a whole. Uh, so it's not that, it's the sort of subtle stereotyping that goes on. And again, the modern and traditional goes, oh, for God's sakes, what are we talking about here? But here's, this is the green, this is the green. And we, you know, I challenge all of us to see what's good about this uh, and to tease apart what's good versus what's mean about this. But anyway, to go on, while artists of Asian descent may be represented in classical music, many say they do, they do not feel seen. And again, the seeing and being seen is just so key. In fact, I'll, I'll quote from one of my favorite poems called Beautiful Seigneur by uh, Cyrus Casals. And it's a beautiful poem about his night in Marrakesh with his male lover that he had just met, uh, Moroccan lover, and they're making love in an upstairs room. And one of the lines is, all night long, this lover's engine, this Pegasus, seeing and being seen, seeing and being seen. Don't you love that? I love that. And that's what people want. So they're not feeling seen. Quote, you're not always allowed to be the kind of artist you want to be, said Nina Shikhar, 26, an Indian-American composer who said her music is often wrongly characterized as having Indian, uh, Indian attributes. It feels very invalidating because her music doesn't have any Indian attributes, I guess. All right. Um, let's see here. What else are we going to say? Um, yes. They, they quote from a 1967 article in Time magazine titled Invasion from the Orient uh, about the classical music scene. And Time magazine, again, 1907, wrote, the stringed instruments were physically ideal for the Orientals. Their nimble fingers, so proficient in delicate calligraphy and other crafts, adapted easily to the demands of the fingerboard. So there we go. Over time, Asian artists gained a foothold in orchestras and on the concert circus. By 2014, the last year for which data is available, musicians of Asian descent made up about 9% of large ensembles and 6% of the population. So that's, um, you know, at least they're putting that in there because that, uh, that's significant. Uh, but now they, uh, blah, 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 okay. So then uh, we go on to um, some of the solutions. Actually, I do want to read from this David Kim because he must be a thorn in the side of the, the symphony in, in San Francisco. Here's what he wrote. Kim said he is grappling with a sense of loss after realizing that his work as a classical musician no longer aligns with his values. I'm not proud of being part of an industry that is so self-aware, un so unaware, aligned, uh, that is so self-unaware, that's so entitled and has so little regard for social justice, he said. He said he believes change will not come until classical music, which he calls, quote, racism disguised as art, 
unquote, reckons with the, its legacy of intolerance. On the surface, Asians are accepted in the realms of orchestras, ensembles, and soloists, Kim said, but are we really accepted? That's the distinction, is can they be seen uh, beyond the stereotypes and, and actually bring the karmas of their history and so forth into the scene? People want to do that now. And the side um, article is about a opera singer, or no, an acclaimed violinist that says it's time to tackle myths and marginalization. And this is Jennifer Cobe. And she writes an article in here called Bringing True Universal Universality to the Concert Stage. And there she is. And you can see her there. And so I did a practice with her where I look at that picture and I see, oh, there's an Asian woman. There's an Asian woman with a violin. So then I look closer and I see there's a woman. And then I look further and I can see into her and see into her face and her eyes and her being, even through this photograph, and say, there's a person, there's an artist, there's somebody with a unique in all of time and space, karma and identity that um, I want to know in that way. So that's, that's good. That's what we, we want to do that. And, you know, a, a, a lot of social movement, a lot of the culture war right now, that's really what we're doing is, is despite the fact that it's ugly, not beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful, but not pretty. <laughs> it's, it's definitely much ugliness. There is fruit. And, you know, as, from an evolutionary standpoint, being comfortable is a dead end. We, we do fight and friend our way forward. So we are doing that. This is another one that's sort of in the same territory. Um, well, actually, I'm not sure I'll do this one today. I might hold that one. But I do want to, um, <laughs> what is it? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to do about a half hour, and we're, we're over that. So I'm going to do one more quick article, because this is the final frontier. And that is, uh, well, I'll just read it to you. This is from my own newspaper, The Daily Camera in Boulder. And uh, this is a letter to the editor. And this is a letter from, I'm not going to say their names, but they're age 10 and 8, uh, Jamie and Allie. Um, and here, here's, um, here's what they said. Kids on Hikes is the subhead. And the headline is, Treat Us with Respect. A few days ago, our family went on a hike to Sky Pond in Rocky Mountain National Park. The sights were beautiful, but the comments of people we passed were annoying. Here's some of the things we heard. Quote, hi, honey, do you need a ride on your daddy's shoulders? To our mom, regardless of our presence, people said, quote, we're surprised to see little kids up here. They talked to her mother, not them. How about that? Then next, this is another one of the things people said to them. What a trooper you got there. I know she meant me, Jamie, the person said this, but she could have addressed me directly. I said to her, yeah, my mom is pretty great. She, so she turned it on this woman and said, what a trooper you have there. My mother's the trooper. That's something. Okay, then the last paragraph, we know their intentions are good. Well, that's nice. 
People are trying to be nice to us, but we but they just don't get it. We hike, hike all the time and don't need or want little kid attention. A simple high is good for us. Remember that kids who are hiking are competent and should be treated respectfully. And there they are, ages 10 and 8 in Boulder. So even little kids don't want to be seen as little kids, or at least these two, or at least their parents. I don't know. Uh, but yeah. The beat goes on, we widen their circle, we see ever more deeply, we, re we reveal more of ourselves so we ourselves are seen ever more deeply. And this is the healthy move into green that is often attended with um, you know, unhealthy aspects and welcome to evolution. So that's the first episode of This Week in the New York Times. It's a production of the Post Progressive Project, which is part of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And I encourage you to check it out. Uh, the, also check out the Post Progressive Post, which is online. And, um, and it, uh, Steve McIntosh is the president of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. I'm on the board and they're happening. Uh, we have a great new executive director, uh, Josh and um, Josh Leonard. And um, yeah, uh, things are cooking and I'm happy to do this show and happy to see you and please comment. I'm not a great Facebook person, but I'll try uh, I'll, and uh, see how it goes. And um, yeah, I'll do my best. Okay, thanks folks. See you next week. Same time, same station for another episode of This Week in the New York Times.